Hello, everyone. I am that Williams guy. We're recording this at uh, 7 p.m. Eastern on Friday, December the 30th. And joining me tonight is Mr. Lou Gosnell. How you doing, sir? Very good. Thank you. All right. Uh, to the audience, uh, there is a battle over uh, a trash can in the background, so you may hear some some fierce dog fighting in the background. Uh, so just ignore it, and we'll go along. Uh, Lou, if you would please introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, I'm Lou Gosnell, uh, currently a range master for Gunsight Academy Incorporated in Paulden, Arizona. I'm a retired peace officer, uh, 30 years plus in Southern California and Marine. All right. Um, before we got started recording, you were telling me you grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I had the idyllic childhood, as far as I knew, until... Uh, I read uh, a little bit more into it, but uh, yeah, I grew up in the Willamette Valley, a small town called uh, Loa, uh, between Beaverton and Hillsborough, west of Portland. And uh, summers were spent outside until it got dark and uh, running the creeks and fishing and doing all the things that young boys do. Uh, and uh, you got involved in law enforcement initially through the Explorer program? I was very fortunate. Yeah, uh, a friend in in uh, high school invited me to uh, a post meeting at the local sheriff's office. Uh, I I fell into that program hook, line, and sinker uh, with ride-alongs and training and uh, the science of of law enforcement, the forensics, etc. cetera. Uh, and it helped me when I in military service and in later on in law enforcement, uh, professional service. Uh, and then, immensely. go ahead, I'm sorry. No, immensely. I mean, the uh, the mentoring that I received there as an Explorer Scout from deputies who at that time were, for the most part, uh, you know, either Vietnam service veterans uh, or longtime uh, professional uh, law enforcement people uh, was just, as a you know, 14, 15, 16 year old, uh, as a character character building and a, uh, something to emulate, really really helped me later on. All right. So after high school, did you enlist in the Marine Corps, or did you do that in conjunction with your law enforcement career? No, I, I right out of high school, I went into the Marines, uh, combat arms. Uh, Interestingly, uh, I planned to get out and go back home to Oregon and go into a sheriff's office in some capacity, hopefully to become a deputy. Uh, but there was this little thing called Mount St. Helens that uh, put a little damper economic wise, economically uh, on the, the entire area. And so uh, looking around, I did, uh, uh, it was Jimmy Carter's. Uh, economy so there wasn't that much going on outside uh, prospect wise i went to uh, talk to the recruiters uh, did a, a four-year re-enlistment into the military police as a mos uh, again only a huge help later on in my my law enforcement career uh, worked as a supervisor at camp pendleton and uh, also as a was trained up as a uh, PMI, Primary Marksmanship Instructor, which is also just a little bit of help in my future endeavors. 
All right. And from there, you ended up staying in Southern California as a, as a law enforcement officer. Well, uh, I was fortunate. I, I met some people in Oceanside uh, who were uh, some of the founding members of uh, IPSC uh, and Cowboy Action Shooting. Uh, Bill Hahn, Gordon William Davis, the famous leather uh, uh, holster maker, and others. And not knowing what I didn't know, uh, I was, started to shoot with them in, in the local club matches. Uh, that training and that experience uh, sort of got me hooked into competition later on. And uh, at the, I, eventually I got good enough or was, was fortunate enough uh, to be able to compete at uh, the national level in USPSA. Uh, so that actually started while you were in the Marine Corps. Yes, yes. Uh, a little, okay. the little Oceanside Combat Pistol League, uh, just outside the airport. All right. Now you say competing at the national level. You're short selling yourself there a little bit. Didn't you win some championships? Well, again, I, I've been fortunate. The uh, uh, it's 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 more like a, a just a coincidence. Somebody somebody has to win. The uh, initial cowboy action shooting championship in 1982, I just happened to be there with my friends, uh, Davis and Bill Hahn, uh, and Frank Kerr and uh, uh, others. The, uh, and it's not the way cowboy action shooting is now. It was, it was very heavy. It was 50% rifle count and then 25% pistol, 25% shotgun. Well, I could shoot a rifle. And uh, that's how I wound up winning that, just statistically wise. It's not because I was a great shot or any kind of pistolier, but uh, the rifle was just counted too heavy for them. Well, I guess since we're, we're talking about the prevalence of the rifle and we're talking about the cowboy action thing, we might as well segue right into the lever gun thing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, Probably the the one class that is in my repertoire that generates the most correspondence. You know, I get more emails from people asking about lever gun issues than I do anything else in the repertoire. Unfortunately, it sells worse than anything else in the repertoire. Um, I guess there's still, mm -hmm. a still a fascination in America with the lever gun as the American rifle. And everybody... And everybody points to, you know, John Wayne, the good guy carrying the lever gun in all those Western movies. Well, guess what? The bad guys all carried them, carried them too. But we yeah. associate it with the good guys. And I think there's some carryover to that in societies that if you're using just, you know, grandpa's old Winchester 94, a use of force just isn't going to be looked at the same way as if you do it with a modern tricked out AR. Well, that's... Uh... That's the psychology of uh, media misrepresentation uh -huh. and stigma stigmatization of certain weapon types. You know, so uh, it's it's okay for uh, John Wick to do everything that he can do with with every kind of weapon type that there is, and nobody's nobody's upset. But uh, if you pick up pick up your black rifle and fend off a bunch of home invaders, ooh, everybody's like. Right. Ooh, oh, 
why did why did you have that you know you don't need 30 rounds well yeah you do that was the that was the idea of the the, the lever action in the first place was that you had more ammunition on board so that you could keep going yeah uh, i developed the lever action skills because it was the only rifle i had you know my my, my father didn't bat an eye as an eighth grader going to the pawn shop and taking the money that I saved up and buying the lever action <laughs> rifle and bringing it back home to me, I don't know that he would have done that for an AR-15. Uh, maybe, yeah. It, it, it's all it's all a matter of training, uh, discipline, and responsibility. So, uh, if you're if you're able, you know, if we we teach twelve year olds how to fly an airplane, let them solo by themselves. You know, it's saying there's no difference between that and having somebody be responsible with a with a firearm. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I advertised, I think, back in 2013, um, a lever action patrol rifle class, and I got an email from some guy just shocked. I, I can't believe you're offering this class. You're, you're going to give people the impression that you think that the lever action is a viable patrol rifle. <laughs> well, that's exactly the impression that I'm trying trying to give. It was for, <laughs> yeah, it was for a hundred years, but yeah, it is a viable patrol rifle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I recognize that there are other things that are superior. But what I'm trying to say is, you can take this platform. I, actually, it may have been before 13 that I did the the actual law enforcement version of the class was before before that because it was during the all the uh, the Sandy Hook mm -hmm. stuff. And. Yeah. You know, what I was trying to say was you can take this tool that you may have sitting around because you inherited granddaddy's deer rifle or when you were in middle school, your your, your dad gave you a letter action 3030 and now you're out there on patrol and your agency will authorize it. Well, you can take this rifle and you can, you know, make a viable tool out of it. I also recognize that there is the superiority of the box fed magazine for that intended intended purpose but you know people tend to think that the lever action because it's manually operated is going to be a more robust system and that's just not the case and when i try to explain it to people they just don't get it what's been your experience in in that uh well you you're, you're talking around the edges of the weak parts of the lever action rifle and how they tend to be you know manipulation sensitive right uh, the orientation of the gun has to be maintained a certain way to maintain that reliability. It does not work upside down, right? right? Uh, it doesn't work sideways. Right. It likes to be straight up and down when you're running that action. And uh, unlike a like a Mauser and controlled round feed, which you can do all those things with it and it doesn't care, the lever action won't let you do that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it won't work. For all the things that you needed to work for because we we tend to overthink and you know we get this john again you know not to pick on a really good actor in, in, in really fun movies uh but it uh, how many times i know in in my law enforcement career uh in in defense defense shootings of the citizen versus criminal not law enforcement versus criminal but citizen uh the number of rounds fired by the citizen was usually, if it was more than one, it was extremely unusual. And if there was a round fired at all, 
again, that was extremely unusual. So uh, a good gun that's reliable enough, like a lever action rifle, if you know how to manipulate it correctly, will do everything that any, any good quality gun will do. Okay. And it does it in a slick package with, uh, you know, a sexy look, right? Because Westerns, and then it's just, it's just stupidly handy. You know, it's ridiculous. The, the thing is smaller, thinner, cleaner uh, than, than all, most of all the other, you know, very, very good rifles. Uh, but it'll do all the things that the other rifles will do just in a handier package. And I think the biggest selling point for it, other than the psychological factor, you know, from optics of being held up in front of a media camera or a jury, is the lack of the mechanical offset when compared to, say, an AR-15. It basically shoots point of aim to point of impact across the room. Sure. Oh, yeah. Across the room. Yeah. Across football field. Yeah. All those things. Yeah. Uh, you're not having to do the whole aim an inch and three quarters above where you're intending to shoot. Inside of twenty-five yards, no, uh, yeah, which is which is one of my areas of grief with the AR platform, is that with every other sighting system, we teach the students to drive the sights, and then we hand them this carbine. But with this, you don't do all that stuff we've told you with yeah, all the other. Yeah, only remember this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I just as little work as we see cops get with their pistols, they get even less work with their carbine, and then we expect them to remember this very key component of it uh, oh yeah under the most stressful time they're ever going to use the rifle and thankfully I, the minimal numbers of encounters that we have with cops actually using the rifle actually mitigates the catastrophe factor of that if they were using them on the same level that they have to use the pistols i think we would see much more catastrophe out there uh yeah but what i think a lot of that offset, I don't, I'm not talking about side offset, I'm, yeah. the offset between, you know, catastrophe and non is the technological improvements in aiming devices for the guns right. themselves. Right. Yeah. Um, you mentioned with the lever gun that it's got to be straight up and down. And I found that to be uh, correct as well. I obviously don't have as many rounds down range through one as, as you do from the competition side of it. In my experience, that is exacerbated even more when you're trying to run, say, 38 special through a 357 long gun. Sure. Uh, well, well, gun. Yeah, no, these guns are very, it's, I, won't, I wouldn't say that they're finicky, they're, but they're by type, right? You right. get what you pay for. Uh, the economy models are going to be just good enough to be safe to ship out and handle, you know, what's going to be required. Uh, from a safety standpoint and an accuracy standpoint for your very casual user. When I say casual user, I'm, you know, I, I don't want to over simplify it, but somebody who's not going to shoot much more than maybe 20 or, or 40 rounds over the course of a year, and then maybe not shoot 10 rounds each year following that forever, right? Or uh, you know, the, we, we look at the shooting sports and think, oh, look at all these people that are involved in the shooting sports. It's still a very, very small number. We, when you look at uh, USPSA, IDPA, uh, NRA, competition shooting, et cetera, 
compared to, I don't know, uh, skiing or, <laughs> uh, you know, similar, right? Mm -hmm. The, uh, you're talking uh, maybe a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand actual sh people that go out and shoot, right. compared to millions, right? Mm -hmm. Now, now hunting's a different game. Uh, sports sports people that are involved in uh, pursuing game animals, uh, your classic deer hunters, and other types of shooting, waterfowl, etc. Uh, again, no, those numbers go back up into the millions. And but you'll see very, I don't, I don't think you see the same number of people engaged in formal competition that they do in duck hunting, right? Oh, yeah. uh, I, I, a good friend of my family, uh, a judge in California, adamant duck hunter, loved it. You couldn't, you know, he, he, was, he was looking at his watch, right? You know, we got to get this case moving along, okay, uh, because I got to get out to the blind. Mm -hmm. uh, but you you couldn't drag him to a trap or skeet range, right. okay? With the prospect of hookers and booze at the end, no, he wouldn't do it. And that's and that's for a judge. I mean, that's how that's how yeah. much he didn't want to go do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a, a key point. There is that people on the defensive side of the firearms industry, the training side, et cetera, they get upset that the big manufacturers, you know, cater more to the hunting side of the house and they do the defensive side of it uh defensive for lack of a, of a better term it's like well, okay well they take that shotgun with that's got that huge 14 inch length of pull stock on it because <laughs> they're going they're going to sell far more of those to bird hunters than they're going to sell uh you know the shortened 870 you know all they're going to do is you know they're going to make a 18 inch barrel instead of a 20 inch barrel plant it black and now it's a now it's a fighting shotgun and then we get upset that how come they're not doing all this other stuff to the shotguns that we have to do after the after the fight? It's just not as economical for them to do that. We're such a small percentage of what they're selling to that it just doesn't affect their design. No, no, you can you can see that when you look at some of the big outfits mm -hmm. uh, catalogs, right? You know, okay. you look at uh, Mossberg. It's a it's a terrific example. I mean, but Mossberg's so good they catered they catered to anybody everybody you know every every economic spectrum so uh they have state-of-the-art fighting shotguns which you and i would call you know fighters mm -hmm. that fit within the 1934 gun control act and still still you know are still handy enough and then you have they have all the turkey killing guns mm -hmm. I've never seen a turkey out in the wild that wasn't, you know, trying to disappear. So the, the fact that they sell that many turkey guns for only, apparently there's only three or four birds in the entire country, as yeah. far as I can tell. That's sarcasm. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, the, most people don't think about having a defensive gun mm -hmm. every day. People like us that are in the business of teaching people how to use firearms responsibly, yeah, we're thinking about it all the time. And we're looking at cases and uh, incidents and studying outcomes and so forth and trying to come up with good tactics and advice uh, in our training syllabuses for that. 
uh, but your average person that's just getting up, going to work, coming home, paying the bills, not doing the things that crooks and cops do in their face, they don't think about those things that much. So that's, I think that's a pretty good reason not to have so much emphasis on the defense side of guns. Well, you know, you, you go back to the lever action platform. A cowboy action shooter will fire more rounds through a lever action gun in one match than the typical lever action carbine will get fired through it in its entire existence. Oh, yeah. Probably probably, probably that much because it got shot at the Alamo. Yeah, yeah. probably. So, somebody who comes through the gun site, lever action class, or comes through my class, they're going to shoot more rounds that one day than pretty much every other the lever action rifle in the county in which they live will ever fire combined. Correct. Correct. And that's and that's where you find out the weaknesses of that platform because all those screws, all those interfaces, all those different pressure points on the gun come into play and all those screws start to unravel. Mm-hmm. All the sights start to loosen up and come off uh, because of that volume of ammunition spitting put through the gun. Uh, but that, well, I also want to go back and kind of make the point that you were saying earlier. You know, take this lever action rifle, you know, Granddad's ninety four or three thirty six or whatever. If I have to use that to stop an intruder from coming into my home and hurt my family, it's gonna, it's gonna get through that. If it's gonna oh, ride, yeah. if it's gonna ride around in my patrol car for twenty years and one time I pull it out to take out a bank robber. It's going to do that. It's just not going to stand up to the all-day, everyday abuse that something like an AR of quality manufacturer is going to stand up to. No, no. And and uh, let's go back. You know, you go back to the old west and the people that were out on their own and wouldn't go to a store maybe in two months. Mm-hmm. And then, so when they left to go out to wherever they were living everything they needed they took with them and if they didn't have it then they would make it and if they didn't make it they would fix it so that it would work good enough and then uh, that that kind of independence uh, taught people to take care of the things that they had because that's all they had uh, our you know we're very fortunate to live in an economy where if this breaks oh well I'll just go over to the hardware store and get another one. Uh, most of us have that that uh, ability now. Yeah, well, up until 2020, we did. Oh, I thought we were going to talk about guns and training. Not my favorite topic. Yeah. Uh, well, just, you know, I spent a lot of time with Tom Givens on the range and, and one of his common sayings about dropping a magazine on the ground. It's like, this is America. We can get more. Well, we used <laughs> to could get more. I don't know if we can all the time now. Yeah. All right. So at some point you transitioned from the Marine Corps into law enforcement. Yes. Uh, could you tell us about your law enforcement career? Uh, in 1990, uh, I joined a small municipality in uh, Southeast Los Angeles called the city of Maywood. And uh, basically it is one of the smaller cities in LA County. 
but at the time it was one of the 10 most densely populated cities in the United States. Uh, population on the official census was something like 40,000, but the actual population was somewhere around 65,000 due to a bunch of very various uh, reasons. The uh, County of Los Angeles has a, a easy, funny way of, of counting people so that they don't have to count people. So it, when they say that there's this many people here, just factor another 0.5, just add 50% to whatever the number is, mm -hmm. and you'll have a more accurate number. All right. And so you started with Maywood and started in patrol, I take it? Everybody starts in patrol. Uh, if, you, if you're able to last in patrol, then you're, you're, gonna, you're probably going to be pretty good. Uh, uh, working in Los Angeles County and the processes of working with the district attorney's office, et cetera, teaches you two things. One is patience and the madness of, you know, rhyme or reason, right? So uh, things that you would think should be dealt with are ignored. And then things that why why does any why would anybody care about this at all are are big deals right so uh city politics county politics it's the same everywhere all, all across the country uh, but the busyness of it was something that was uh startling for me so uh, being able to to deal with that and, and work and and be successful at it uh was 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 a great experience for me did you stay with Maywood for your whole career? No, no. Uh, small town politics. Uh, I lateraled out of there uh, after 10 years. Uh, went to a neighboring agency. Worked there for another 20 years. Uh, and just had a, a great time. Uh, both experiences were uh, very good. Uh, did all the law enforcement things that you could want to do. Uh, from serving warrants, uh, felony warrants, detective work, uh, robberies, homicides, uh, very, very busy area of the country from uh, a law enforcement standpoint. All right. Now, I noticed in your bio up on the gun side that you also shot the SOF three gun matches and there was something on, uh, was a steel challenge shotgun? Yes. All right. Could you tell well, us about that real quick? Well, I, I, I uh, again, I was fortunate. I, I was uh, work, working in that area, living there, uh, home to the Southwest Combat Pistol League. Later, later they, they got rid of the word combat mm -hmm. and it became the Southwest Pistol League, uh, which was the birthplace of the Steel Challenge. And uh, some of the greats that that shot it, uh, Angelo Spagnoli, uh, Bruce Gray, uh, and others, Nick Pruitt, uh, I was able to shoot with them, practice with them. Uh, and by kind of by osmosis and, you know, seeing how they trained, seeing what their techniques were, uh, my own morphed into something that 
looked like pistol shooting eventually. And uh, best I ever did at Steel Challenge was 11th place. Uh, and that's, you know, that's with all, all the bells and whistles. And then uh, I won uh, when they were having it, a side shotgun, the shotgun speed event. I won that in 1989. Uh, the Soldier of Fortune three gun match, I competed in for uh, several years and uh, won that match in 1989 as well. The uh, Soldier of Fortune three gun became, it was the precursor to uh, USPSA three gun. And the, uh, but the, the stages were a little different as far as complexity and distance involved. So uh, USPSA tends to be something, you know, closer range. You have to get out to uh, other specialty ranges like Superstition Mountain and uh, others to get uh, distance as far as rifle. So how did the training for the competition side what from that translated over to the application side that you're doing in the Marine Corps and you're doing in your law enforcement job? You know, what's the crossover there? Well, it's manipulation of the gun is, is, was the first one that, you know, jumps out of my, my mind. Uh, being able to keep the gun up and running, uh, seeing trends and being able to analyze what a particular gun is doing, uh, we teach, you know, uh, when I started, when I went to the academy in 1990, uh, two thirds of it was the, the cadets were still using revolvers. Uh, myself and a couple of other uh, cadets were using semi-automatic pistols, either uh, Glocks or 1911s of some, of some and uh, the, the bias against semi-automatics are still there uh, in the police academy. So we were only loading with six rounds in our semi-auto pistols. So we could be fair with the revolver shooters. And then uh, the manipulations, how to clear malfunctions. Uh, that was, I, I know that they addressed it, but it was like 30 minutes of clearing a malfunction in a, uh, a you know, your, your future gunfight, you might want to have a little bit more than 30 minutes of how to clear a malfunction uh, when it's going to be raining at 2 a.m. out on the I-5 freeway uh, somewhere in Inglewood. Maybe, maybe, you want, <laughs> maybe you want to know how to fix that. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that we hit on, you know, now I try to, uh, is addressing that with, uh, you know, when we're clearing malfunctions in a class at Gunsight or any other class where, where I'm instructing, the, uh, I like to use the idea of maximum violence on the gun. Uh, so many malfunctions are caused by babying the gun or not holding it properly or trying to do you know, do something with it to make it, you know, recoil less. You can't, you can't do that. You can't. Uh, 
and trying to get the, the idea across that the harder you work the gun, the more reliable it's going to be is, is one of the things that's the toughest to sell. But eventually, you know, eventually people will get it. it. You know, it's amazing that these pistols work really good when you're standing in a perfect stance with both hands on the gun. I know, weird. And then when you're not in that perfect stance and only have one hand on the gun, problems arise. Mm-hmm. And oh. Or when you're back, when you're, yeah, when you're running sideways and trying to get something, you know, thick between you and whatever it is, yeah, uh-huh. it suddenly... The most reliable thing in the world is not that reliable. Yeah, it's funny when you when you you're trying to convince people of this on the on the line, and you're trying, hey, you need to be practicing this. Like, well, I've never had that problem. Well, nobody else did until they did either. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Everything yeah. works right up until it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, positive out positive thoughts aren't necessarily a plan here. You know, we need to we need to be planning for for the for the downfall uh we were talking before the show and you mentioned something about the disconnect between the skill set and what we can learn uh could you go into that well this disconnect from what we can enjoy from the game and then the skills skill sets right so there and let me be perfectly clear i am a i am a 100 pro competition shooting Anytime you can compete, that is a terrific, that is a terrific, terrific outlet. Uh, the stress that you get in competition against, uh, when, you're, when you're shooting against other people, that artificial stress is, is a definite inoculator against fear and stress when you have, a, when you have an actual life-endangering situation. Uh, I've, I've seen it in my law enforcement career. I've seen it uh, in uh, analysis of lethal force encounters. Uh, people that have trained to a level of near unconscious or, or literally unconscious uh, competence with their equipment do very well. They do very well. That doesn't mean you can't still lose if you do everything right, but generally you don't. Uh, and those people who, as you just mentioned, you know, this never happened before. And when it suddenly does, they, they, they go blank, like, oh, I don't know what to do now. Uh, that, that, kind of, uh, that kind of training that you get in competition where, you're, where your gun goes down and you do a malfunction clearance. Well, if you're doing that in the stress of competition, the carryover would be that you would be able to do that again in the stress of a lethal fourth encounter, most likely, right? You're not waiting to, you know, go back to the table and analyze it. You get a click instead of a bang, and so you count to 10 in case it's a cook-off. No, you're not going to do any of those things. Uh, you're going to get the gun back up and running so you can save your life or somebody else's. And that stress what you get from competition is it's most valuable. It's the most valuable thing about it, I think. You know, it's, it's fun to shoot anyway, but uh, the stress of being up in front of other people, strangers, and performing on demand, that stress, although it is artificial, right? Nothing bad is gonna happen to you there. Uh, 
it carries over into actual confrontations. Um, how do you translate that to the training environment for both the private citizen and the law enforcement officer? Well, you can't translate it. You can, I encourage it, right? Uh, uh, now, very often, uh, you know, somebody will be talking about like, what's the, what's the scariest thing anybody can do? Well, often it comes up, uh, well, uh, give us, give a, a talk in public, right? Speak in front of a group, speak in front of a group of strangers, right? Uh, that a lot of people have a fear of that. And like that's, you know, is that the scariest thing you could think of? Well, yeah, that's the scariest thing I could think of. Well, you, you're not thinking very hard then because I can think of a lot scarier things than speaking in front of a group of strangers, right? Uh, the idea of practicing through these things, creating scenario training, working through that, right? Uh, although it's expensive, when we do it at, at gunsight with force on force or uh, any other location where you have live players and you do scenario training, Again, that's just another form of stress inoculation, right? That outcome, there's not going to be a negative outcome. You're going to be able to walk away from it, right? Uh, so the, the lessons that you learn about yourself and uh, whether it's tactics or reactions or observations, uh, that's, that's, that's the correlation I'm talking about. When you uh, shoot in competition, you get to see what the course of fire is going to be beforehand. Uh, when you go into a force-on-force -force scenario, you don't know what the, you don't know what it's going to be. Right. You don't know where you're supposed to stand. You don't get to know where you're going to get your best angle on the target because the scenario was fluid. Being able to think through those, being able to anticipate by training, from the past training, you can correlate that into what your future responses could be based on if somebody does this, then I'm going to do that. If they do this, then I'll do this instead, As if, that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I guess one thing I, I guess you, you could say is coming from that is the stress of the competition. You, know, you pick up on so much of how the gun operates. And it goes into what you were saying about the, the malfunction and everything. And, and learning to operate the gun under stress, you don't focus so much on how to operate the gun. Like the actual, I have to do this to get the gun out of the holster. Well, if you're not getting the gun out of the holster, to, you know, practicing enough that you're getting the gun out of the holster in a time frame in which you're competitive. Okay, right. there, there, you know, there's a carryover there. I remember I, I didn't compete at any kind of high national level. I shot, you know, some club matches and I did some, you know, some state and regional stuff. The one thing that I took back to the application side of the house was the difference between shooting against a running clock and the difference between shooting in part against part times. You know, like our state qual, 
had a draw and shoot two shots in three seconds. Well, there's no yeah. difference between the guy that does that in 295 and the guy that does that in 175. Right. You get you get you get the same score. All right, but there's a huge difference in that between that on the competition side. And I remember showing up for my first IDPA match, and like I'm king of the cop hill over here oh, based right. on call scores. And I yeah. show up and you know, and I'm like, I'm shooting my normal pace and everything, and like I get all the points and everything. And then when they post the scores, I'm like, wow. How did I, yeah, how did I get beaten so badly? And so then I go back and I start working on that speed and some of those things. And I get where I don't have to think about stuff that I was thinking about previously. And I also learned kind of target math and having a clock running in my head. Okay, I've got so much time to do this, this task. I can do that, but I can do it an X amount of time, which gives me that much leeway. And I can say, well, that translated over with shooting at the TATCON match this past year um it was kind of a generous part-time for a stage and I'm, i was just learning how to run the pistol mounted optic and there was a stage we had to shoot support hand only and i presented the gun and missed the dot on the presentation and instead of panicking i'm like i've got four seconds to do this let me take a half second readjust this <laughs> gun and then i can still fire the four shots in the remaining second and a half yeah. Yes, that kind of thing is what I I gained from competition. And then you can translate that into, you know, out in the field. It's like I know if I have this scenario presenting itself in front of me, I have this finite amount of time to do it, but I know what I can do in my response. Right. Well, you just described coolness. Uh, right. So instead of panicking saying, Oh, I can't find the dot, uh, what do I do? You're just like, oh wait a minute, no, I got this much time to do it in. Right. which is a lot of time mm -hmm. instead right? right so that's and those all those thoughts are, are going through your head in you know microseconds you know a couple hundredths of a second per thought and you're that's be, from practice that's from concise practice focus practice not not from you know you didn't invent it right then mm -hmm. You knew how to do it before you got there. Yeah, you know, and the stress of where your name appears in those rankings compared to, well, I shot my 82 this year, so I'm good to go for this year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for for, yeah. for for the cop side of the house there. Um, you know, just encouraged skill development. And I think, you know, we forget that the benefit from the competition side of the thing and, you know, where that can carry over. And I think people tend to get hung up on the, well, if you, you, you know, you do this, it's going to get you killed in the streets. Well, there are some negative things that I see from the competition side of the house. Uh, I had a guy in a class earlier this year that at the end of every string that we did in the class, he would unload and show clear no matter what I said. Right. That's a, that's a built-in bias. Right. Yeah. And as part of his unload and show clear, he would also point the pistol to the berm and press the trigger. Right. That's an unconscious response. And I, I said, you know, sir, um, 
for one, let's not unload and show clear. Let's go back to the holster with a live gun so we're ready to run the next next drill. And the other thing is, you know, pressing the trigger in that scenario is not a good response. And it's like, well, it's a last ditch effort to make sure that the gun's not loaded by pressing the trigger. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. No. See, that's why that's why you and I would get along out in Poland, right? Because we right. we're very we're very much after after the first two hours at gunsite in whatever class yeah. you're taking, mm -hmm. uh, it's a hot range from then on. Uh, yeah. And, and it, it is it is the safest place on earth. Uh, right. Because a holstered gun, right, is a safe gun. Mm -hmm. right. So, uh, and then the idea that you're going to confirm that the gun is empty, and then after you've confirmed the gun is empty, then press the trigger. Well, what if you wanted to? Wonder, what if your mind says, "I want my gun to be empty," and you do all the things, but you do them out of order: mm -hmm. distraction, you know, micro stroke, whatever. And you miss this, and now you press the trigger. Why? Right. I mean, why? Why not just set safe, put it in the holster? Right. Yeah, because the worst possible outcome there is the gun firing when it's not supposed to. Correct. So why am I going to do the thing that would cause the gun to fire? Because that's the way we've always done it. Right. That's why. Yeah. That's and, the way we do it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, and, and, you know, to, to this gentleman's credit, he was good natured. And by the end of, of the class, he had gotten out of some of those things. Now, I don't know what he did the next time he went to the range. Uh, but it's, you know, it's what we're training ourselves to do is what we're going to do. No, I've, I've investigated enough suicides and homicides to know that if you don't have a reason to, to pull the trigger, you should probably not pull the trigger. Yeah. Uh, anything else you see from the negative side of competition that you wish to address? Well, you just touched on the big one right there. Mm -hmm. That uh, there's a there's a certain amount of casualness I see in competition, where like in the unload, people will try and catch the round. They'll flip it out and catch it in midair, like you know, uh, a juggling act. Uh, I don't. I don't think that's. I don't think that's good. The uh, it, unloading the gun should be a somber event. It should be extremely serious, and it has to be 100% focus on what that particular operation is. Uh, turning it into a display is a bad idea, but uh, that that would be my one. That's probably my number one gripe about competition. Modern modern action pistol shooting competition. All right. Well, other than the stress inoculation, what are the positives? Well, there's the accuracy standpoint, right? The uh, accuracy is rewarded in competition. The uh, speed of the entire operation. Anytime you can become more efficient, that's always a positive. Uh, there's the problem of discernment, right? Uh, if you run through a course of fire and bang, 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 shooting, 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 you just have to remember that it's competition, okay? Uh, the, uh, I've, I've studied videos where uh, 
uh, an officer, we'll say an officer in this case, has a, a lethal threat, draws his gun, shoots twice, and then immediately holsters the gun. Oops, gunfight's not over, but, but he'd done that so much, trained it so often, mm-hmm. gone through that cycle so many times that unconsciously, that's exactly what he did. He did exactly what he was trained to do. And so uh, we want to be careful about that, right? So that discernment part, uh, you know, discernment is a big, big word. Uh, knowing how to keep things going and what's important, you know, the, uh, one of the things I like to stress and other instructors that I work with is the, the, the axiom of what is important now. And now is always continuous now, right? So <clears throat> what was important then is not important right now. <laughs> it's going to be important again, but right now, yeah. now is important. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, is the fight still going? Is, you know, is my adversary out of the, out of the picture? Uh, are they down? Are they, have they fled? Uh, are there more adversaries they have to be aware of? Uh, what's the condition of my weapon? Uh, you know, where's my best position of cover? How do I get out of this? You know, what's my escape route? All of these things are what's important now in a continuous now. Uh, keeping keeping that, you know, there's a, uh, you know, various levels of, of uh, this whole, you know, the, the complexity of fighting, uh, the most important part is to avoid fights uh, if you can. Mm-hmm. And we do that by, you know, making good life choices, et cetera, not going to dumb places, not having dumb friends. Uh, but sometimes the fights come to you, right? We all have to go to places where uh, the most often fights happen, gas stations, uh, ATMs, you know, fill in the blank. We all have our, our, our you know, local bad news locations. Uh, so training for those, staying ready, being aware, uh, all of these things are things that help from competition. Uh, being able to analyze quickly what the situation is, and what, how it's developing. Again, these are all things that you can be helped with uh, in competition, I think. All right. Um, you are a range master at Gunsight now, correct? Correct. All right. When did your association with Gunsight begin? I took my first class there uh, with uh, Pat Rogers as the range master in 2003. And uh, subsequently took uh, a couple more classes uh, in 2000. And eight, uh, Ed Head uh, helped me into the provost program. Ed Head was the operations manager at the time, and uh, he has since passed. Mm-hmm. But uh, in 2008, I came on as an adjunct instructor, and then in 2016, I became a range master. What evolution have you seen in that time? Uh, well, one is the propaganda war. Uh, we talked about a little 
a little bit a while ago about uh, the Weaver stance and what uh, you know uh, the evolution of it and how if Jack Weaver was alive today, people would be correcting him on how he had the Weaver stance wrong. Uh, it's the same thing with gunsight. Uh, very often, our, our harshest critics are people who have never been to gunsight for any training or may not have had any formal training at all off other than off the interweb. So uh, that's that's an interesting uh, topic. Uh, you know, we teach the, the phrase, the, you know, the, the terminology has changed. Uh, instead of Weaver stance or isosceles, uh, we, you know, generally just call it a fighting stance. And whatever your fighting stance is, that's what it is. Uh, we we offer suggestions on, you know, best practices, uh, but we don't try and uh, pigeonhole you into, you know, this has to be this, or you're doing it wrong. No, uh, if you're getting, if you're able to get good hits, and the time frames that are allotted in our, our class structures, then. Well, keep doing that. Okay, you're you're okay. Uh, when we can offer improvements or suggestions, uh, that's what we try to do. Uh, but we're not going to tie your hand behind your back and make you write, you know, you know, in cursive, just with all the other kids, just because that's the way we do it. No, if you, if, you know, we're all we're all individuals, and so there's that. Uh, any other evolutions in the doctrine that you've seen over the time? Well, uh, you know, minor tweaks. You don't, you know, we tend to stick with things that are proven successful. Uh, whether it's flashlight technique or uh, use of lights, optics on pistols uh, you know this is not this is not a brand new fad huh. optics you know Jerry Barnhart and Brian Enos and Rob Latham had them on their guns in the early 1980s and so the idea that ooh you know this is you know blasphemy you know iron sights are the only way to go because everything else will fail no no You've had dots and optics on, on rifles for 150 years. And the uh, acceptance of that, you know, it's, it's just like anything else, right? You know, no, it's never gonna catch on. Automatic transmissions, nobody's gonna wanna drive that, okay? Takes away the fun of driving. Now, yeah, it does, it'll be okay. Yeah, you know, talking about the optics on on the on the pistols, I think it's J. Henry Fitzgerald's book that was published around 1930. There's a picture of a pistol with a optic on it. Mm -hmm. in that book. It's either that one or uh, Himmelwright's book, uh, which would have been published 14 or 1914 or 15. One of them has the picture picture of a pistol with an optic on top of the gun. 
like an early attempt at an electronic, what we would call a red dot now. And you know, the whole concept has been there for forever. Uh, what kills me though, is that these people that form hard and fast opinions without doing research and actually testing mm -hmm. their opinions. And, you know, the equipment does come and go in and in fads and, and true technological advances. Uh, Eric London and I did a low light class here. Uh, we did three of them here recently. And we got to laughing about how in 1999, when we had Stinger lights that were 60 lumens. That's we right. Thought that, we thought that was, because that was a step up from the mag light. Oh, yeah. And, but, you know, because you get the smaller light that would now fit in a little pouch on your belt that had more light than this big thing you had to carry in a ring on your belt. And yeah. the differences in techniques. You know, we didn't teach the Chapman light technique in this class because nobody had a flashlight that had a button up near the bezel. They all had end cap <laughs> switches. Yeah. Yeah. That's a change in the technology that changes the methodology. And yeah, and, and being able to have multiple techniques that you can adapt with uh, based on you know what you have in hand, right? You may you might have the best fill in the blank surefire Phoenix Streamlight, whatever tactical light somewhere else, but the one you got in your hand right now is this Costco Ever Ready with with a switch that is on it somewhere, you know, and not yeah. being able to go, oh, now I'm stuck, right? There's a yeah. leaf in the trail. I can't go forward. No. Yeah. I was asked the question the other night about what is the, quote, best flashlight for daily carry. Well, I carry yes. a Surefire. I carry a Surefire Stiletto, <laughs> but my work environment allows me to walk around with a flashlight clipped in my pocket and nobody bats an eye at it. Yeah, look just like that one. Uh, yeah, I can walk around with that clipped in my pocket and nobody bats an eye at due to my work environment. But if I was in an office setting in which we wore business attorney of suits, that might withdraw some eyebrows. Well, and so, so I may have to give up performance of the light to go with something that can fit in my pocket. I, I don't know. Ever since 9-11, when uh, a couple hundred people got let out by one guy who had one uh, pen light on him, uh, I don't, I don't know that you get that much grimace about a flashlight in the in the office. But uh, and then once you explain it to him, then they'll all, then they'll all be quiet. Uh, it's like uh, I don't know how many times I was asked by another officer uh, if he could borrow my knife to scrape off a counterfeit registration tag, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm um, like, you know, they sell these. <laughs> they sell these at stores. Yeah. You can go you can go to that one right there. I can see it from here. Talk to talk to Dave. He's he'll sell he'll sell you a knife. It'll, it'll, yeah. It's okay. Yeah. Tell him I sent you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um you know, of course, the, the the opposite of that is also true with there's a very large university in the area in which I work, and it is verboten under state law for people to be carrying certain types of weapons 
on that campus. And so I stress to them, get a flashlight that has you know, what I jokingly refer to as DNA scrapers on the bezel. And mm-hmm. I send I send them to a local cop supply house that sells those particular flashlights. Go out there and tell them to get the light. Tell them I sent you, sell you the light, and they'll know what to what to sell you. Right. And and I tell them to stress them at that point that a flashlight is a flashlight is a flashlight until you use it as a weapon. But you know, I was trying to make the point to this other person is you know it's going to be the one that you have with you that's going to be the best one, and your environment may dictate which one you can carry. And of Absolutely. course, you know, I carry a clip in my left side pocket. I'm right-handed and I can reach down left-handed and grab that flashlight. Well, if I was working in a different setting, I might not be carrying that flashlight in that pocket like that, but I might have it, like, say, in a briefcase or a backpack. Uh-huh. Yeah, so those are other options. So we have to use other techniques. And I think that's one area which the people in the so-called tactical world or defensive world get caught up in is they think everybody can dress like a tactical hobo. And, <laughs> and, and you know, and no, that is the way you must, must, you must have this gear carried in this. If you don't have a center line, center line knife, you're, you're, you're just asking to get killed. Okay, well, people have to have a job. Yeah, part yeah, of part part of surviving yeah. is having a roof over your head and food in your your pantry. Yeah, and rules rules are rules are not made to be broken. They're actually meant to be followed. So you're not you're not wrong. Uh, the people that make rules that make you helpless, you know, I know that they're wrong. Uh, you know, but we, that's a that's another topic for All another right. time. All right. Um, my favorite thing about the rules is that if you know the rules, you can manipulate them to your advantage. But if you don't know the rules. <laughs> then, then you're then you're subject to to whatever whatever whims are coming your way. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've always always kind of chuckle when uh, you know somebody some nice person in one of our classes will will ask me, well, what should I do if the police stop me? And I'm like, well, how many times did the police stop you before? Right. Well, never. Well, yeah. Well, keep doing that, <laughs> and that's exactly how it's going to stay right. never yeah here's the thing actually read the employee handbook <laughs> actually read the hr guidelines yeah i can think of a couple of times in throughout my career where the the hammer was about to fall on me and i said you know uh section whatever in the book outlines a procedure that you must follow to address this and the person that's trying to hammer me doesn't know the procedure (laughs) yeah i think i'm just gonna let this go (laughs) yeah that's another reason that i work at gunside it's like right we we have an hr yeah i well no we don't (laughs) right Uh, I, i used to work in a very bureaucratic uh, institution and and knowing the rule book was was handy. Um, I, I don't work in a very bureaucratic institution anymore, so it's not necessarily <laughs> as it's not necessarily as advantageous as it used to be. Uh, on a humorous note, that kind of ties into this, um, I had to dispatch an animal one night with my service pistol, and the actual published rules of the agency said any time there's a discharge of the firearm, the supervisor on the, will write a memo to the chief. Sure. On, on this. 
And I wrote the memo and sent it up to the chief. And I come in to shift the next day and they're all kind of sitting around talking about it. And they're like, uh, why did you write that memo to the chief? And I said, because it says to do it in the manual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's when you kind of demonstrate a knowledge of the rules, people don't challenge you on the rules. Yeah. As much as when you don't. But, uh, yeah, I guess that's enough on career survival and bureaucratic agencies. But uh, anything else you would like to talk about from the competition side of the house to law enforcement, military career training, et cetera? Well, well, I've been fortunate. I've been a lot of fortunate places with a lot of very talented people uh, that have, you know, helped me and uh, guided me and mentored me. So being able to do that going forward is one of the things that I enjoy about the, the work that I do. It's not even work. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a hobby that I get paid for. Right. So uh, keeping that going is, is, is the goal, right? Uh, the evolution of the modern technique uh, keeps moving and these little, these little technological innovations or improvements are just that they're 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 helpful but they uh, they're not as helpful as having the positive mindset and uh, the skill set to be able to effectively you know manage yourself as well as whatever weapon you're carrying any particular mentors you would like to pay homage to oh good grief uh the list is long and uh, honorable. So, uh, yeah, the you know, names I mentioned already, uh, Bruce Gray's well-known gunsmith and shooter, uh, Gray Guns, the uh, head head who got me uh, all the help I, I needed at Gunsight. Uh, people I've worked with over the years, they know who they are. Uh, been very very fortunate all right well Lou, i thank you for coming on tonight and uh spending some time with us and and, and talking about your career and and the benefits of the competition etc um any final thoughts you would like to close out with <clears throat> well going back to uh cops and you said you know i shot my 82 so i'm good mm -hmm. for the year right uh that ego problem, right, is is the is the is the greatest barrier that any person who carries a weapon for self defense has to get past. You have when you go out at, when you go to competition, the greatest barrier to going to competition is that you're not going to look good. You're going to be embarrassed. You won't perform to the level that you're going to see other people performing to. Put that aside. It's all it's all part of learning. It's all part of getting better. Uh, if you can get past that, you will do nothing but improve, and that's and become a more confident person uh, at the same time. Ego. Get past that, and things generally improve. I do think that is the biggest challenge right there. That's why there's all those famous cops out there shooting in Ipswich. Oh wait a minute, there's not that many. <laughs> <laughs> You know, well, cops can't shoot. What about Bob Vogel? 
Yes. Uh, sure, sure. Throw that in my face. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And of course, we've had a. And my, I was chief deputy under the previous sheriff, and we had three deputies that were involved in, in shootings. Uh, each of the three deputies performed extremely well. And I, I hear from, you know, people in the training world and everything, because those shootings, two of the three of them are on video. And uh, people talk about how good the guys do. And I said, well, I've been blessed by having bad guys that have poor deputy selection. <laughs> to have gunfights with uh, <laughs> two of those three are in the uh the top five or six on the casino drill record from range master oh, you know uh the the bad guys keep choosing the wrong deputies to pick gunfights with you know if they would pick one of my 82 shooters it might not go so well but they keep picking my 99.6 100 shooters and, right. Uh, so as long as that keeps up, we'll keep looking good. But yeah, uh, I just hope it stays that way. I would rather people not pick fights with us because of all the stuff that happens afterwards. And there's always the chance of something going wrong. Always <laughs> the chance of something going wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we, people. We, we plan and somebody else laughs. Yeah. You know, everybody always wins the scenario in their own mind. Well, they knew what the scenario was going to be in their own mind. Right. And that's just not the way it plays out. But, uh, sir, thank you for taking the time to, to come on here on a Friday night and, and record for the show. My pleasure. Very much enjoyed it. To the audience, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. We're just short of the goal that we need to reach to be able to activate some of the features through YouTube. So if you would subscribe to that, I would very much appreciate it. Uh, for those of you that are listening on the podcast feeds, thank you as well. Uh, and remember, everyone out there, share the links to the show, but only share them with your smart friends. We, we only want smart people watching the show or listening to the show. And I know that to the audience that um, time is your most important asset. So thank you for choosing to spend some of your time with us.